I don't know if you know this or not, but you and I are going to die. What a way to open the message, huh? <laughs> you and I are going to die. Whether we realize that or not, whether we want to think about it or not, that day is going to come where we don't take another breath. And philosophers and religious folks, scientists, doctors have been trying to figure out the answer to this question for years, in fact, of all of history. What happens after you die? After you take that last breath that all of us are going to take someday, what happens and how can we know what happens after that? Campus Crusade for Christ, which is an incredible organization that is on college campuses telling people about Jesus, wrote this great article that you can look up online if you want. And it's called, What Happens When You Die? And they summarize some of the views that, that people have come up with or philosophers or different religions that say, here's what they believe happens when you die. I just want to walk through just a few of those with you this morning so you can get an understanding of what all of the different views say about life after death. For instance, noted atheist physicist Stephen Hawking compared death to a computer that stops working when it breaks. He thought of the afterlife as a fairy tale. Very hope-filled, huh? Ancient philosophers like Socrates or Plato believed that when the body died, the soul lived on. Atheist philosophers like Marx and Lenin and Nitschke did not believe in the afterlife. They viewed belief in the afterlife as in conflict with living life to the fullest here. I think Jesus would have something to say about that. Islam, one of the major religions, of course, in the world, says that Muslims believe people have immortal souls. After death, the destination of that soul depends on a person's good and bad deeds. And then another main religion that many of us know is Buddhism. And in general, Buddhism teaches that eternal individual souls do not exist, but that after death, people usually experience reincarnation based on their actions and desires in this life. Many different views on the afterlife. And so what Paul wants to do in 1 Thessalonians is present to, to us in the text that we'll look at today, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 13, all the way through chapter 5, verse 11, on what the scriptures say about the afterlife. And what we're going to have to see today is both. It's very different than what we've already looked at. And you and I, we may need to make a decision. What do we believe about the afterlife? Because all of us are going to die someday. And if what Jesus says is true, what are you and I going to do about it? So if you do have your Bibles, open up the 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We have Bibles in the back if you want to open one of those up. You and I have a phone. We look up a lot of things on our phone. Maybe we can look up the scripture there too. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. The Apostle Paul says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have. No hope. Yesterday, my wife Paula and I and Paula's sister and her husband 
went to Lima, Ohio, about two hours away from Sandusky, where I live, and we went to a funeral showing for our good friend, Tiffany. Her mom passed away. Tiffany is such a great woman, and her husband, Clark, he serves on our worship team, and her mom was her best friend. She was the only child. In fact, Tiffany's mom was born with type 1 diabetes and was sick all of her life. She became so sick about 20 years ago that she needed a kidney, and Tiffany, her daughter, donated that when she was in her 20s. An amazing woman, but just like all of us, we die. She died, took her last breath. Tiffany and the family got to be there when that happens. And if you've ever lost somebody like my friend Tiffany has, you know that the grieving process begins when that person takes their last breath. I know for me, I've lost family members and close friends over the years when I know that at that point, I'm really starting that grieving process. You have probably lost someone in your life, whether it's a spouse or a parent, God forbid, a child or a grandchild, where you're walking through the grieving process. Pastors, we get the privilege and the honor of sitting with someone as they take their last breath, and we get to come alongside of families as they begin the grieving process. Grief is a gift because it shows us how much we loved our loved one, and we're trying to process what it means when they're not here anymore. And if you're familiar with the grieving process, Kubler and Ross came up with this grief cycle that starts with denial and then goes to anger and then depression and then bargaining and finally acceptance. I laugh at this image because if you've ever had to grieve the loss of someone, wouldn't it be nice if it was just a straight line like that? If you've grieved, you probably know it kind of looks like this, doesn't it? Back and forth, up and down. It's such a hard thing to have to lose someone. And I think if the Apostle Paul were here today, he would say, I agree with these five statements. This is how you ought to grieve someone's loss. But I think he would say, unfortunately for Kubler and Ross, they're missing one key aspect to it that you can truly only find when it comes to following Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, again, back to verse 13, focus on those words in the yellow. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Christ follower, when you know someone who loves Jesus and they pass away, sure, we must go through this process of trying to figure out what will our lives look like with our loved one not here anymore. And the grieving process can take days, weeks, years to go through. And Paul says, when you go through this, it is so normal, but also know that our friend, our family member, those who believed in Jesus is with Jesus. And so we can have hope over all of this process. Isn't that good news this morning? Paul says, grieve, be frustrated, be angry, be sad, be in denial, but know that you can also have hope. And Paul says, here's how you know you can have hope. And he builds this case for hope. Compare this to all the other ways that people have come up with to say, this is what happens when you die. This seems very hope-filled to me. 
The Apostle Paul says in the next verse, in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised again to life, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Just a little bit later in chapter five, he pretty much repeats himself. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. If you compare different philosophers and religions who believe in an afterlife, if you had to give them a sentence to kind of link them together, it would be this. Your afterlife depends how you live your life in this life. It's all based on morality. It's based on our goodness. It's based on our performance. When we die, were our deeds better than our bad deeds? Could we tip the scales in our favor? The problem with that that I see, at least personally, is that makes me very insecure, and it makes me always feel like, am I doing enough? Because when I look at my own goodness and my own morality, I look inside and see a person that's very self-absorbed. I see a person that wants to do good and wants to live morally, but I don't always live that way. In fact, when you look inside of me, it is a mess. And if I have to base my afterlife on my performance, I'm going to get a failing grade. But Paul says, because of what Jesus has come to do, it's not based on our performance, thank God, it's based on Jesus's. For Jesus came and he walked this earth and not only was he moral, not only was he good, he was perfect. He was the perfect human being with people and with God himself, the life that we should have lived. But we couldn't. Because we're curved inwardly, we're self-absorbed, we're sinful people who look out for number one. Jesus never looked out for himself. He looked out for others. He looked out for God's will. And he lived this life. And then when it came to his death, he was nailed to a cross. That physical pain would have been unimaginable to us. But the spiritual pain, so much more. For sin, death, our past Guilt, all of the things that we have gone through was laid upon Jesus. He cried out to the, on the cross, why have you forsaken me, Father? Because of that separation with him and the Father, it was at that moment that when he was separated, we now know that we'll never have to be separated again from the Father. He dies with all of those things on himself. He is buried in the ground and he was treated like every other dead person. He's dead. He's gone. We're going to visit him. But we miss him. We grieve him. He'll never be back. But Jesus, he loves a good comeback story. And Jesus, three days later, they went to see him in the tomb. The tomb was empty. Jesus walked out of the tomb. God raised him from the dead, left sin behind, left death behind, left our guilt behind, but got, or came out victorious as a new person. And those of us who trust in him, believe in what he's done on the cross and through the resurrection, they too can know that when they do take their last breath, it's not their last breath. It's their first breath into eternity. That 
It's hope-filled. That's why when we grieve the loss of our Christian brothers and sisters, whoever they look like, we miss them, and we ought to miss them because they made such a significant difference in our lives. Relationships are the most important things in our lives, and when that person's gone, C.S. Lewis says when his wife died, it's like an amputation. But you know what? Under all of that grief, we can have hope because of what Jesus has done. We can have hope that they are with the Lord even today, as much as I loved our worship service this morning, those who are with Jesus today are having a far better one. And if that's you in this room that believe in that, we want to celebrate that this morning. We don't often do this, but I think we ought to honor Jesus right now. Let's stop what we're doing and let's honor what he's done for us on the cross. So take your communion cups out if you have them. If you need one, raise your hand. We'll make sure someone gets one to you. You can take the top part off and just hold this in your hand. And this is just a symbol of hope, a symbol of our Jesus who was broken on the cross so that we could be made whole someday. Let's do this to honor Jesus together. You can push the little tab down, keep it away from your Sunday best here so you don't spill it on yourself. When Jesus died on the cross, Scripture tells us, obviously, his blood was poured out, but that signified a new covenant or a new relationship instituted by God himself as a gracious gift for us so that when we receive it, though Jesus did it for us, we receive it and have eternal life with him. Shouldn't we celebrate that hope this morning? Let's do this to thank Jesus. I think my professor, Dr. Whitmer, says it best when it comes to grief and hope together. He says in his book, The Last Enemy, you may shiver as you walk through the shadow of death, but the shadow itself is cast by the bright light of the resurrection. So go ahead and weep, but only as someone who knows how the story ends. And thankfully for us, it doesn't. That is hope. And that makes Christianity different than every other religion, every other ideology, every other philosophy out there. It doesn't mean that you have to accept it or not. That's your choice. But that's what Christianity is. And you have to choose, is that what you believe? And what are the ramifications of that? It's amazing, the gift that God gives us. Now, this hope is a huge theme in this passage. So Paul's going to continue on to talk about hope. And this passage that we're going to look at has been misquoted often, misinterpreted often. And so what I want to do is read it to you in its full, and it's kind of weird if you've never read it before, but I want to go back and then understand what is Paul saying. That is our job as Christ followers, not to read into what we want the text to say, but what does Paul say, what does he mean, and how do we interpret that for us? So let's look at this passage together. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18 in the following. So we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise 
from their graves, then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on this earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. And when people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. Now, May 11, 2011, Harold Camping predicted through biblical numerology that he studied for a very long time that on that date, Jesus would come back and he would bring his judgment to those who do not know him and those who do know him will go to be with him forever. Well, that was obviously about 13 years ago, give or take a few months. I'm still here. (laughs) You're still here. So either we missed the boat or it didn't happen. And I am probably going to choose the second part, that it didn't happen. The the problem with this, though, is he put these kinds of billboards all around the world, 3,200 of them to be exact, in the States and around the world, guaranteeing that Jesus would return on May 11th. Obviously, he didn't. But not only does he think it's that date, he says the Bible guarantees it. That's a dangerous thing to say. And throughout history, there have been people like Harold Camping who have said this is when Jesus is coming back because this is exactly what the Bible says. The problem is that's not what the Bible says, nor is it how Paul wants it interpreted. You see, there have been a lot of damage done in the name of Jesus because Christians want the Bible to say what they want it to say instead of allowing it to speak, and then we interpret it from there. And not only would it confuse you and I who are following Jesus, who are like, oh boy, I better get all my affairs together on May 10th because the next day I'm going to be with Jesus. And then it doesn't happen. You're like, well, can I trust the Bible? Because this guy said the Bible guarantees it. So not only does it confuse us, what about all these non-Christians who want nothing to do with the church, who want nothing to do with the Bible? They said the Bible guarantees it. It doesn't happen. Then what? It confuses them even more. They distrust the Bible even more than they do now. So the greatest thing that we must do is not take someone's word for it. Don't take my word for it. What does Paul say? What was he meaning? And in what context was he writing in? If we get that right, then we can understand what the scriptures say and not what we think they ought to say. So with that in mind, Why does Paul write it in the first place? He says in verse 18, again, encourage each other with these words. Again, in 5, verse 11, encourage each other. Build each other up just as you are doing. In between this passage of seemingly kind of a sci-fi event happening, Paul's describing, he says encourage one another. Why? Because the church was being persecuted. The church was going through a very difficult time. It was suffering in the name of Jesus. 
And they needed a word from the Lord through Paul to help them get through this time of discouragement. And Paul wrote to them, explaining what's going to happen in the end to get them through what they're going through now. It's the same thing with you and I. When we're going through pain and suffering or we're questioning God or we're doing something in his name and people are pushing back, we need a word of hope. We need to know there's a future out there that'll help us get through the present. And Paul says, here it is. I'm going to take you to a time when everything that you see here is going to be renewed. That Jesus, he's going to come back to this earth and reclaim what is his in the first place. The enemy had his chance to wreak havoc, but now Jesus is coming back again to take it over, to renew it back to its Genesis 1 and 2 state where there was shalom, where there was peace, where there was life between God and his people. And he's going to come back here with all Christ followers to reclaim this place as home. And we're not going to just be floating up in heaven forever, playing harps, because that sounds really boring to me. Jesus is going to come here, reclaim the world as it is. We're going to work with him and worship him and be with other Christians forever on this new earth, what is also called the new heaven. Now that is hope-filled. Paul wanted to inspire hope to get them through these difficult times, to get their eyes on the future so their present could be taken care of. That's why Paul wrote this. Never in his mind could he predict thousands of years later people would be predicting when it happened. That was never in his mind. It was, it's going to happen we don't know exactly when. We don't know exactly how. It's not meant to be a puzzle to put together. Here's the hope. And the hope is about Jesus. And if we can get that right, then we are interpreting the Bible the way Paul wrote his letter. With that in mind, let's go back to this very confusing passage. Towards the end, we see some things of the end is coming Soon, Herod Camping was right about that. The end will come eventually. And Paul's kind of describing what this ought to look like. And he talks about those who have died are going to be raised from their graves. And you think to yourself, oh man, is this an episode of The Walking Dead or is this the Bible? <laughs> if you're unfamiliar with The Walking Dead, I'll admit I have not seen the show. I do know it's a show about zombies. <laughs> and this sure sounds like the zombie apocalypse is happening. That's not it. Paul's saying, hey, you're going through suffering right now. Your bodies, your minds, your hearts are going through it right now. But someday when you die, when Jesus comes back, you're going to be renewed. You're going to have a new body, just like we saw with Christ. Keep your eyes on the prize. When you die, there is a future. The grave is not your future, but life is your future. And then Paul, he talks about then those who are still alive will be caught up in the air with Jesus. Now, that word, caught up, that phrase that we see in verse 17 is Latin for the word raptus, which is where we get the English word rapture. This rapture theology, which we have seen a lot in different movies and popular books, was actually made popular in the mid-1900s, not back in Paul's day. 
They used that time to kind of predict when the rapture was, and then people took it. And then we see these movies and read these books about what may or may not happen. Again, Paul, if he were here, he'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you fictionalizing something like this or trying to interpret it in this way? That's not why I wrote this. I wrote it to give people a future, to encourage them to tell them what's going to happen after they die so they have hope. Yes, people who are dead, they're going to come alive and have new bodies to be with Jesus. Those who are still alive, Jesus is going to bring them up with him and there's going to be suffering on this earth and we're going to prevent them from going through the fullest of the suffering. And when that is all done, Jesus is bringing all Christ followers back down to this earth, this new heaven, reclaiming it as his own and we get to rule and reign with Jesus forever. Remember he says, I want to encourage you these words. That is encouragement. That gives us hope. That paints a beautiful picture that I don't have to perform to get to be in heaven. No, Jesus not only dies and he resurrects, but he also has a plan to make all of this new again so that we get to come back home where we belong with Jesus forever. I almost went home falling off the stage here. (laughs) But I have hope. That's what he means here. Again, I cannot tell you how serious I am about this when I say that Paul, he writes for a purpose and an occasion with context. We can't just read what we want it to say. We must read it through Paul's words. And let me tell you, reading it through Paul's is so much more hopeful than I read it from someone else trying to interpret it their way. Now, again, Harold Camping, he wasn't altogether wrong. He got the date wrong. He got the idea of what this is supposed to be wrong. But he was right, the end is coming. And we need to be prepared for that. Because when Jesus does come back, he is coming back for Christ followers to redeem this. But those who don't know Jesus, he's coming with judgment, righteous judgment. We read in verse 3, he says, When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then dad's aster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains. And there will be no escape when Jesus comes for those who don't know Jesus. When Jesus comes and people that don't know him, they're not with excuse. We all know inside of us, whether we want to believe it or not, there is a God. We just reject him. We say, God, hey, you can create all things and you can be real, but We want to be the God of our own lives. And Jesus, when he comes to judge us righteously, says, you've chosen this. You can't escape it except for putting your hope and your trust in Jesus. And so what Harold Camping is saying is true. The end is near, and we have to turn to Jesus to be with him forever. But if we get fixated on the when and try to figure that out, we've missed it. Because Harold Camping, he's probably a very smart man. And I'm not judging him because I never met him. But here's the problem. Jesus, when he talks about when, he goes, however, no one knows a day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. So when you hear somebody say, oh, Jesus is coming back this date, you run. Or you just say back to them, there's no way this person knows because even Jesus says it's not important. It's not when. It's if. Or excuse me, it's not if, it's when. And it's not even about when, it's how. How do we live? Paul, he said the same thing as Jesus did. Now, concerning how and when all this will happen to your brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you because it's not important. It's not important of when this happens. 
He says in verse 2, For you know quite well that day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. If there's a thief, he's not going to say, Hey, I'm going to rob your house tomorrow. <laughs> no, they're going to come unexpectedly. Jesus, he's not going to tell us when. He's coming back when he is ready. So we can't figure out when. But we, as Christ followers, need to focus on how. How ought we to live between now and then? For that was Paul's concern. And I'll leave you with these words right here in verses 4 through 8. Let me read them to you. For you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters. And you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like others. Stay alert. Be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. Never once does Jesus say, predict when I'm coming back. He says, how are you going to live, Christ follower, in the darkness? The way we live is knowing how the story ends. Those who are living without Jesus, they don't know what the final chapter says. We do. And you know what the final chapter says? God wins. However Jesus wants to write that chapter, I'm not sure. But I know how it happens that he's coming back and he says, how are we ought to live? With our eyes focused on him. Loving people. Telling people about him. Living in such a way that people who are in the dark want to see what is in the light. We have hope. My professor says it this way. We have the hope of the return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and the restoration of all, excuse me, all things. What happens when we die? It's this. So Christ follower, live in such a way that people who are in the dark want to know our Jesus and have the same hope that you and I get to have this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so glad that you simplify things for me because I'm a very simple person. You came, you died, you rose again, and you're coming back. Between those times, Lord, may we be Christ followers that love people. May we be Christ followers that live in such a way that tell people about heaven and the alternative hell and how we can be with Jesus forever. May we be Christ followers that this darkness would not be Enveloped with more darkness, but we would shine lights so people can see where they need to go, which is to you, Jesus. We love you, and we thank you that we will never have to grieve without hope. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great Sunday.